certainly have fears that there is a serial killer at loose in Perth. Sarah Spears, Jane Rimmer, Kira Glennon. And every time you saw a young girl walking by, you think, oh God, is she going to be the next victim? Now, one man stands accused. If police are right and Edwards is the Claremont serial killer, he's been hiding in plain sight for 20 years. Today, the court heard Jane Rimmer and Kira Glennon suffered similar wounds and likely died in the same way. Hello, this is Claremont in Conversation, Day 34. I'm Natalie Bongiolo, joined by the West Australian's Tim Clark and criminal defence lawyer Damien Cripps. Tim, did the evidence today give weight to the case that both victims were killed by the same person? Um, well, I'm sure the prosecution would argue that, Matt, and probably will do. Um, uh, listeners will probably think from your intro, well, we've heard all that before, and, and yes, we have heard about the the, the similarities, alleged similarities between wounds and, and methods of disposal and defensive wounds and things like that. But we've only really heard it from Spar Gallo, and uh, as we've discussed previously with Damien, um, what the lawyers say is the evidence, it's what the witnesses say is the evidence. And so today was really the first time that we've heard uh, uh, any witness, specifically an expert witness like Dr. Cook, uh, be asked about the similarities, um, particularly of wounds, um, and and give his opinion, and that's and that's what he did. They, he he's been on the stand for four days. It's been a bit of a marathon for him. He's very experienced at this, by the way, so it didn't really seem to phase him. And this was the the, the denouement of his evidence. He was asked, having gone through the particular neck defects we've talked about and the particular defensive wounds we've talked about, he was then asked to compare the two. And he said that in his opinion, it was likely, um, and in, in Kira's case, extremely likely that those defensive wounds were caused by a sharp instrument, i.e. a knife, that they were caused um, anti-mortem or peri-mortem, which is actually very close to the time of death, um, and that they were... Uh, noticeable on the bodies in similar ways i.e. from the from the, the levels of decomposition the advanced decomposition where those wounds were which is why they they knew or think they know that um that it was uh they were inflicted close to pre-death or close to time of death so so it was it was quite an important um a, a thing for mr uh, for dr cook to to, to say because it is ve- it, it goes to very much the uh, the prosecution's arguments about the way the similarities um, in in the in the in both murders. Damien, how important is that link to the prosecution case? Well, I think that as Tim has pointed out, it's important in that it's the first time in the case that we've really heard anything significant about the way that um, the victims may have died. Um, and, and Tim, certainly correct me if I'm if that's not um, if I've misunderstood what you've said, but that would that would be a significant step towards proving something beyond a reasonable doubt. So now you're actually starting to make some significant ground towards answering the question of who, why, where, and all those things. Um, when I say it doesn't answer who, and it doesn't answer why, and it doesn't answer where, but it's a small piece in the picture about, um, if you're thinking about the collective whole of the allegation, it's a small piece, but it's a significant piece because um, 
Well, I, I guess for the listeners and for myself, I mean, that, that's been a bit of an untold part of the story for, um, you know, a long time. Um, and if I could just ask Tim, Tim, am I correct in, um, in my summation that, that it's a significant piece of evidence as to or this, the first time we've heard something about the way the victims might have died? Yes, and and the the words you use there, Damien, is the is the real key is collective because we know these these cases are being tried together, obviously, but they are also separate trials, trucking along side by side, if you like. Today was one of the first times that there's actually been this cross matching, this 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 um, collection. Of, of evidence and comparison of evidence to show or to try and show that there, there are these these distinct similarities which the prosecution say mean that they, they can only be um, have done been have been done by the by the same person um, and it, it was noticeable very noticeable over four days it, the evidence dr cook was asked about in, in jane's case and kira's case was being done in set like back-to-back separately so that he would do Jane first because obviously her body was discovered first and she was killed first and then Kira. But then right at the end, um, Carmel Barbagalla tried to draw those lines across the cases to show, well, Dr. Cook, you saw both bodies, you were at both scenes, you you attended both post-mortems, you consulted with Dr. Margolius on both and now this is this is what you conclude, and 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 he was quite and he was he was he was quite sure that the neck defects, even though they were not identical and they could never they could never be, but they were uh, similar enough for him to be able to draw that comparison. And the same um, with the defensive wounds; they were on different arms, but they were both very common um, in nature to what a defensive wound is, where you put your hand up or your arm up to try and defend your head. Um, and then later on today, we heard from Dr. Alana Buck, who's another pathologist, or anthropologist, and forensic pathologist, uh, and she um, she said the same thing, particularly about the defensive wounds. So, Tim, awesome insight. Very difficult in the position you're in um, when you're doing this, and I understand that there's a lot of um, listeners, and you're trying to convey to us information, really sensitive information, or, or information that you know, as you've discussed and has been discussed on the podcast is subject to questions about suppression and all those um, all, all those sensitive sorts of issues. But did we hear today any insight into whether there was a struggle? Um, well, I, I mean, the prosecution have always said from day one of this trial that they believe that the girls fought for their lives. And these defensive wounds are absolutely indicative of that, if that is what they are, and that is what two now expert pathologists have said they think they are. So, so um, Tim, sorry to cut you off. Did, did Dr. Cook say that? Yes. He said that, in his opinion, they were defensive wounds, and going right back to the start of his evidence, he said those when you get those defensive wounds, that is indicative of someone trying to protect themselves. And then in Kira's case, obviously, we also have this, this torn-off fingernail, which is the subject of the heart of the trial, the DNA evidence, which will start tomorrow. So uh, he didn't say it 
in so many words, he didn't say, I think they you know, were fighting for their lives. But he did say those defensive wounds, that is what they are, and that is how people come about them when they are trying to fight off an attacker. Yep, OK. But just following on from that, could you give us some indication how he drew what the similarities were? And, and, and I appreciate just previously you had said that there was a, a defensive style cut, or mm. but was there anything beyond that, or was that about the extent of it? Well, and, and, I mean, going to the major neck defects, it's... <laughs> This is all wrapped up in the fact that the bodies were out in the elements for so long. So he, he all the way along his evidence, Dr. Cook was clarifying to say, well, yes, the, as, as they appear on the avatars that I've drawn, they look like a huge wound. So they were. The one on the back of Kira's neck, for example, was 20 centimetres long. The one at the back of her head was 17 centimetres long. The one on the front of James throat was seven, 17 by 10 centimetres, so you can imagine that, that they are enormous wounds, but because they had been open to the elements, what he said today and had said previously was those wounds would be um, exaggerated, if you like, by the decomposition process, so that is not as how they would have appeared as they were inflicted, but what he could say was they were significant enough and open enough to um, uh, bring on this post-mortem uh, post decomposition at a faster rate than the rest of the bodies, which is why they were so sure that they were done pre-death. And in Dr. Buck's case this afternoon, she said very likely in Kira's case on her arm, very close to the time of death, which again ties in with the, with the, the theory that they are defensive injuries. So... You couldn't draw a map and say they're exactly the same here and here and here, but they are similar enough of similar um, size and area of the body for them to be. Um, for Dr. Cook, who's one of the most experienced pathologists in Australia, to be able to say yes, I think they were. Um, they are. They are similar enough um, to say that they, they. They. You know. They are. I could comment similarly enough to, to on on both bodies. And I guess as an observer, um, what people will maybe take from this is that the idea that these two women had similar injuries, they likely died in the same manner, I guess for many people that will cement their their belief that this has been done by the same person and therefore this is a serial killer. Well, that's, I mean, that's the theory that, that the, the prosecution worked on in court for nine weeks and, and, and you know, in preparation for the trial for, for three years. And then obviously that is a theory that the police have been working on for, for 23 years. So, um, yeah, I mean, it's, 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 it's a phrase that trips off the tongue, but as, as um, uh, both sides of the, the legal argument in the trial have, set, have said already, um, that is yet to be proved and this this evidence today and the, the evidence that took to come um is is the big part of of that argument to try and to try and prove that uh, yesterday we heard there was no evidence to suggest that um jane rimmer had been sexually assaulted was dr cook asked the same question of kira glennon today yes he was and he gave almost an identical answer that there were no injuries um, to suggest that she had been, no obvious injuries to suggest that she had been. 
but again, the um, the level of decomposition meant that he couldn't rule it out either, because that process may well um, have um, uh, hidden or obscured um, any you know smaller injuries that that might have indicated that. So. So he couldn't rule it in or he couldn't rule it out, but there was nothing obvious to say that it definitely had happened. So, Damien, this is a question that's being raised um, quite often, and that is that Bradley Edwards has admitted to raping a woman, but from what we've now found out, it's highly likely these victims have not been sexually assaulted. Do you think that potentially weakens the prosecution's case? Well, it's... Just previously, Nat, you said that um, something that when I was listening to it, I thought would have given the listeners, um, some some of the listeners, um, some satisfaction, if that's the right word to use, and some of the and, and other listeners that would have given them the, a, a challenge, if I could put it that way. And that being that, um, and I, I'm summarising what you said for, for fear of not saying it word for word, but that um, two people... Um, that had been had suffered similar injuries supports the prop the proposition that the prosecution's case is correct and some listeners would have heard that and they would have been satisfied that they agreed with that proposition some other listeners would have been challenged by that saying well but hang on that's the whole point of reasonable doubt there has to be more than that there has to be all those other things and it's I mean the whole point of having a conversation about this topic is it does encourage people to think about it more and challenge their own views on what they think and if you are then to raise to throw into the mix if i could put it that way the the concept that now there's this evidence given by dr cook who's um been been put forward by the prosecution as an expert um that it's unlikely um that either were victims were sexually assaulted um, prior to they were prior to their death, then that does present a challenge to the um, outcome that you previously suggested because we're saying that because there's two similar injuries and the way that they were affected and the outcome of those injuries being um, um, imposed on someone means that it's likely that somebody the same person did those committed those offenses. When the curveball is, well, let's go back to what his admissions were. And then, of course, that raises all those questions that we've addressed previously from listeners, and they were great questions about whether there was a strategy and a theory. And, um, you know, ultimately our answer, or my answer was, that um, there was no strategy. It was merely the fact that he accepted that he was guilty of doing that. He um, pleaded guilty to that. And, of course, there is a thousand, or there's infinite different reasons why you could argue that there was strategy involved in that. But ultimately, what we've just raised right now could have been something that the defence had had in their mind. I, I'm not working on the defence. I don't know. I'm just suggesting that what you raised is a really relevant point. Um, if they're going to rely on propensity evidence, well, part of the propensity evidence is, would be, if I was in the defence, you would say that he had a propensity to do that. And in this case, there's nothing like that. I know a lot of the listeners won't necessarily be on board with me about that, but I think that it's a relevant point that you've raised. When you're looking at um, four similarities, which the prosecution 
probably are or, or, or certainly looking to point them out, you can't then ignore the differences. And, and you, I mean, you can't just tell a, someone, a jury, or in this case, a judge, oh, well, you know, you can ignore those, Your Honour, because they don't fit our case. It doesn't work like that. I mean, it's it, the, the whole... The, the whole box and dice are, is on the table for Justice Hall to look at, and and, and I'm sure he will be he will be directed towards those those um, those differences just as strongly as he's pointed towards the similarities when the when the case is done. Tim, can I just ask in relation to um, Dr. Cook's evidence today? Was was he cross cross examined? Uh, Dr. Cook was yes, yep. yes. And did anything I, um, arise um, that might? Did anything lend itself to this question in cross-examination? No, not really. The cross-examination was was very um, pointed towards um, the differences in um, processes in the, in the, in the mortuary and in, in post-mortems and things of, in 96 and 97 compared to now. Um, that was where the, 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 a lot of the, the drive of the cross-examination cross went. Um, in terms of uh, what, what clothes did you wear? Would you have done that now? Um, were you aware of uh, elements of you know trace DNA and possible con- cross contamination um, by you know using the use of particular in- implements at the state mortuary, particularly scissors and things like and, and forceps and things like that? So that was that was almost the exclusive um, tenet of the cross examination, and he, he actually wasn't. Um, uh, questioned particularly about any um, any noticeable differences um, between um, between both cases in terms of in, in forensic terms. So um, so no, it was it was more um, you know and the the perennial question of what car did you drive as well. I mean that was the last question he was uh, he was asked. It seems to be the last question that every witness is asked. Tim, I was quite interested today um, in the cross-examination when he was questioning him about the nail clippings and how the nail clippings were collected and whether it would be done in the same manner today as what it was done back then. Yes. So that was, and, and we'll, we'll get to it in a little while, these are the nail clippings from Kira, which, which are absolutely pivotal to the prosecution case. Um, so he was asked, um, about the process then, which we know is was a a, a mortuary technician taking a pair of scissors, to, um, clipping or attempting to clip all ten of Kira's nails, and they were physically put into these yellow top containers and then um, taken away for storage. Um, Doctor Cook was asked whether that happens now, and he, and he said almost definitely no um, on various levels. Firstly, he said that. Um, modern procedure would see police forensic officers doing a lot of that initial work at the scene before the body is even removed, in, in particularly in cases of homicide. So if they wanted to take any any exhibits, particularly swabs of nails or um, uh, any other body part, really, um, they would do that on the scene but with, a, with what they call a yellow stick, which is a, a little bit like a, a cotton bud, um, which is immediately placed into a plastic pot, which is then immediately placed into a bag and, and taken from the scene. Whereas, as we know, it was very different then in, in terms of collection of these um, physical exhibits. 
um, only um, there were there were a lot of exhibits taken, but not um, particularly from the body. Only that lock of hair that we've discussed um, from from Kira. Um, and then he said, in particular, when talking about fingernails, um, they would not be clipped as such. Now they would be swabbed, um, and any material in around or um, under those fingernails would be quite thoroughly swabbed, probably at the scene and in, in, the, in the manner I've just described. Um, uh, but they wouldn't physically be removed um, as they were in Kira's case, which is um, which was yeah, uh, uh, you know, an interesting history lesson, I suppose, in in how things have have, have come on in in twenty odd years mm. um, since these murders were committed. And you know, we've heard during the evidence that um, instruments were washed and then reused, and I'm thinking, you know, perhaps that wouldn't be the case nowadays either. No, absolutely. Dr. Cook said in in, in modern um, post-mortems, they basically use um, disposable implements, if, if you like, which are, which are absolutely pristine when they're used and then thrown away and never used again. Um, going back to the, what we were just talking about, he also said if there were, if there were the absolute necessity for a clipping to be taken of a nail, for instance, then the actual nail clippers would go into the bag as well um, and obviously never to be used again because they immediately become evidence whereas in this case we know that these scissors we think that used to cut Kira's fingernails had previously been used to cut her um, some of her clothes away when they were doing this examination um, and he, Dr Cook was particularly asked about scissors and the, the there was some research mentioned by the defence for Genevieve Cleary in her cross-examination um, which suggested that scissors in particular were uh, an implement that could be a high-risk um, cross-contaminant because of hinges and things and, and, and how um, you know, possible trace evidence could get into them and then they're hard to clean afterwards and forceps the same um, cause, because they've got grooves on them and, um, and they, could, they could particularly carry or, or, or retain material um, if they're used more than once. So, he, yeah, he, he said now they, they use disposable scissors or, or clippers or forceps and then they're never used again. And could this go to the heart of um, the defence argument? You know, we know the prosecution claimed that Mr Edwards' DNA is under Kira's nails, mm. but then... Um, the defence will say, well, all these other ways that it could have got there, how are they going to argue that? Do you know? Well, no, we don't yet um, because, um, as Damien would, I'm sure, be able to tell us more about uh, the defence, as we discussed previously, not under any obligation to give anything about their you know, supposed case or arguments away and until they are basically they start asking the questions of a particular witness so but I mean we're starting to see after nine weeks as you can imagine we're starting to see a pattern obviously of all the questions they're asking of particularly during this forensic portion of the trial they've asked a lot about um, clothing they've asked a lot about cars they were particularly interested in this ground sheet or that, that um, Dr Margolius had in the back of her car which which uh, one of the victims was placed on at one of the scenes. They've and then they've asked about uh, um, trace DNA and, and and what was your knowledge of it and, and 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 whether you knew that things could be left behind, even by a touch or let alone a touch, maybe a hair or a fibre or something like that. So 
So it's all pointing towards this this um, theory, uh, this element of doubt they're trying to create about the, the continuity of all these exhibits, not just the DNA, but the, the, the fibre exhibits as well. So that's that's where we think it's all pointing to. But as, in terms of the specific um, idea or um, you know moment that there might have been contamination um, happening, um, no, we haven't got there yet. Um, but as we said at the start, with the, the DNA evidence um, due to start tomorrow, um, we're, we're going to get further into that in, into more detail um, quite quickly. Tim, um, just in relation to that question that um, Nat just raised, um, I'll try to give a really simple analysis that potentially will hopefully help listeners break down how that might unfold. Natalie posed the question that if the defence will try to raise the possibility that Mr Edwards' DNA ended up in under the fingernails of Miss Glennon by some other means. And that's pretty a pretty, pretty simple proposition because obviously the prosecution have to prove beyond a reasonable doubt all those things we've previously discussed, but the defence don't have to prove anything. However, if you are given the opportunity in your closing to say here's how we say the judge should find that that DNA ended up under the fingernails you would say it however as is the case with law often nearly all the time that you can't just say something unless you can back it up so in the defense's closing although they might desperately desire to say that the DNA ended up under the fingernail because the wind blew it there. I know that's a ridiculous proposition, but I think everyone will understand what, what my meaning is in saying that. They couldn't say that unless some evidence had come out throughout the trial that lent itself to that. My point here is that um, one of the reasons that these DNA um, witnesses are taking so long, or maybe taking so long, is because it is extremely important to the defence to try to extrapolate something significant that they could use in their closing to suggest how that DNA got there. Um, and as most of the listeners would be aware from our previous pod podcasts or um, that I'm not actually in the trial and I'm not working on the trial, so I simply come here and join in the conversation and try to provide a little bit of objective view to some of these um, things. So could I ask you, Tim, does, have you felt that during the course of the way that this has been, especially the DNA, that that might be that it has been dragging out because there's there's we're trying to get to the bottom of something that we don't know what we're trying to get to the bottom of. If that makes yeah, sense. I, I, I feel like they're setting up, setting themselves up for what's to come in the next month, six weeks, which is the DNA evidence and the path west employees in particular, but other, also other um, experts and forensic people that were working on these samples overseas as well. And it's interesting you say that, Damien, because we, we, we've said over and over, the defence don't have to prove anything. But uh, you're absolutely right. If they, if they, if they want to come up with an alternative theory, or if, if, that's their, if, if that's their desire, then they can't just pull it out of the air, can they? They can't, they can't just, you know, be, come up with anything there has to be some evidence that has been adduced through their witnesses or prosecution witnesses in cross-examination 
um, that could back up that theory. Right, so that, that's important, Tim, because I, I obviously, like I said, I'm not there. So I was just mm. wanted to double-check that that was the environment that we were talking about because, um, as Natalie had said, obviously if we the defence would be trying to point to some other alternative reason why that DNA would be under her fingernails, there has to be some evidentiary basis for it, for, for, for the submission. And, and I'm, I'm not there, so I don't know what they might use. But um, So just, just for the listeners, that's why I used the analogy of um, the wind blew it there. Well, that's just ridiculous. I mean, it is to say, you know, because if you could make a submission on the basis of no evidentiary background, that's the kind of thing you could say. Whereas you will never get a witness who's sworn under oath. Well, perhaps you would, but we would hope you would never get a witness that would say something to the effect of, well, I was there and I saw the wind blow it under their fingernails because it just doesn't make any sense. So what during the course of the trial, what... um, I would imagine, I don't know for certain, that the defence would be um, looking to do is find some evidentiary basis for an alternative reason why that DNA was there. And if you couldn't find an alternative reason or an alternative explanation, would you ignore it? Is that something that a defence lawyer would normally do? I think that the, the best way to consider that is that it's difficult to give an answer to that not knowing all of the circumstances of the internal workings of their case, the defence case that being. But I think generally speaking, not just for defence, for pro- prosecution as well, and my mind will take me there in a minute, but I think we've experienced it already with the prosecution in this case, that if you can't, if there's no way for you to advance your case on a certain point, just leave it alone. Um, and I think we saw that before, Tim, in relation to one of the questions that we all wondered what the, why the prosecution didn't ask. And, and we'd resolved that it could be the case that they, they didn't advance their case at all. So in answer, the short answer is, uh, Natalie, I think so. I think, yes, you'd ignore it. Ignore it, leave it alone. Yeah. We have a question for you from Christy who says it might only be in the movies, but could Mr Edwards be asked to take a lie detector test by the prosecution or could one be used by his defence team? Are lie detector tests used anymore? The answer to the question is... From where I stand, and Tim, you might correct me, um, lie detectors, lie detector tests are used and they're available. When I say they are used, I'm I'm not aware of them being used in Western Australia at all. I I, I can't think of a case where I've come across them being used, but I do. I, I know that globally that they're still available and you can still um, you can still take them and they're used in a lot of different. Um, Forums, not just courts anymore. They're used for a lot of different things. Um, but my, in answer to Christie's question, um, I don't know what the provision is for whether the prosecution could ask um, for Mr. Edwards to take one. And and the fact that I don't know the answer to that means that it has never been presented to me before, which would make me think that it's actually not an available. Um, option anymore because it becomes an evidentiary issue if he could take an, um, a lie detector test he would have to agree to what I would have thought if he agreed to it then there'd be some cons- you'd have to bring the expert in and, um, and and it's not something that I've come across before Tim have you seen them no I'd never heard uh, of any evidence of a polygraph being used certainly in a, in a serious case in Western Australia uh, I'm not sure about the rest of Australia but I'd 
I, I would imagine that there would be all sorts of evidentiary issues with it in terms of who the polygraph operator was, um, in what conditions it was done in, um, you know, whether the interpretation of the results was correct, all those type of things. So, um, as I say, just on a, on a first basis, I've never I've never heard of any polygraph evidence in any murder trial in Western Australia that I've covered. It's only only spans about twelve or thirteen years, but uh, um, but uh, you would you would think you would have heard of it if it had happened. So uh, so no. I think um, the lie detector tests tests are used. Um, overseas, but they're not used to take it forward to the court case. So mm. I think they're used, you know, prior to that, maybe by police in, and I think some of the Asian countries use it, but I don't think they take it through as evidence in a trial. So, Christy, it might only be in the movies. <laughs> <laughs> um, and just from Tristan, considering the unprecedented nature and interest level in this case, why was only Justice Hall appointed rather than a panel of, say, three? Can more than one judge be appointed to a trial in the Supreme Court of Western Australia? Um, I, my answer to that is I'm sure that the Supreme Court of Western Australia has the avenue to facilitate a multiple judge judges sitting on um, a trial. I'm not aware of um, where the legislation might provide for that. I am aware of, however, that where legislation provides for the fact that a judge alone can sit as opposed to a jury. And my, so in answer to Tristan's question... Um, why was only Justice Hall appointed rather than a panel to say three? Because that's what the legislation provides for. That in 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 an instance where um, the, the the courts are satisfied that there's there's grounds for it, you can have a, a judge alone trial as opposed to a pan, uh, a jury. And that's what we've got here: a judge alone trial. The extension of that question from Tristan is: Can more than one judge be appointed to a trial? I'm sure that if there was reason enough to do it, but there would be some provision or some exception to that rule that might provide for it. But I don't know specifically. Well, thank you for your questions and thank you both for your time. We'll be back tomorrow with Tim and with forensic scientist Brendan Chapman. Join us then for Day 35 of Claremont in Conversation. This podcast was produced by Kate Ryan and Alicia Preedy and recorded in the studios of Seven West Media. Audio files were provided from the archives of the Seven Network and the West Australian. Sign up for daily emails and all the latest on the Claremont trial at thewest.com.au. Enjoying this podcast? If the story behind the headline matters to you, then you can count on thewest.com.au to deliver. For more on Claremont the trial, follow the live blog, watch the nightly news updates, and sign up for daily email updates at thewest.com.au. Subscribe now for just a dollar a day at thewest.com.au.